This program is brought to you by Emory University. So please join me in welcoming uh, Reverend Chad Hill and Dr. Jennifer Lewis. Thank you. We'd like to begin with a little bit of conversation, if it's okay with you. Um, we want to talk about sacred meals. And so we're asking you this question. Think back to a meal that was significant in your own life. Who was present there? What was the space like? What, food, what foods were on the table or picnic blanket or TV tray? What did you talk about? Take just a minute to um, think about that for yourself and then share with a neighbor. You have about five minutes. conversations to a close. I'm sure that we could spend the whole time sharing these kinds of stories and I wish I could hear each one of your stories but um, instead I'll just assume um, that what you shared in your stories is an indication of how much food matters in our lives. So many of the moments of significance in our lives are marked with shared meals, births, baptisms, deaths, illnesses, falling in love, even conflicts. Indeed, the Christian tradition so values shared meals that we organize ourselves around a table and a sacred meal. What then does faithfulness look like in a context of hunger, nutritional deficiencies, imbalanced tables, convenience stores, and fast food. Where is our table theology in the face of these challenges? In telling and hearing these stories you have just shared, it should be immediately apparent that food means so much more than what might be reduced to a simple calculus of calories and nutrients and bodily needs. When we examine our system of food production, distribution, and consumption, we must ask what happens to bodies, yes, but also to families, to relationships, to neighborhoods and cultures when appropriate and healthy food is not reliably available. But how do we get to this place? Our food system places such a high premium in its production on efficiency, on cutting costs, even in wages, and increasing reliance on technology that one might expect that consumers would have more abundant access to more affordable food in wider varieties, at lower prices, and of more consistent quality. It is true, for example, that consumers in the United States spend, on average, a smaller proportion of their monthly income on food than their grandparents did, for example. With growing wealth disparity, however, it is important to note that low-income families in the United States continue to spend approximately 20% of their monthly income on food. In other countries, this proportion might be as high as 43%. These paradigmatic changes in the system of food production and distribution have not, in fact, 
improved access to healthy and nutritious foods for many consumers in the United States and around the world. In many places, food security is tenuous at best. So a few definitions are in order here. Perhaps for some of us, the term food security is a new term. It is by design a broad term and means, according to the USDA, that households had access at all times to enough food for an active, healthy life for all household members. In contrast, food insecurity describes households that are at times during the year uncertain of having or unable to acquire enough food to meet the needs of all their members because they had insufficient money or other resources for food. Families who experience food insecurity report reduced quality, variety, or desirability in their diets or disrupted patterns of eating and reduced food intake. The USDA breaks food insecurity into two categories. One is low food security in which households obtained enough food to avoid substantially disrupting their eating patterns or reducing their food intake by using a variety of coping strategies such as eating less varied diets, participating in federal food assistance programs, or getting emergency food from community food pantries. But then there's very low food security, in which the normal eating patterns of one or more household members, often the parents, were disrupted and food intake was reduced at times during the year because they had insufficient money or other resources for food. On this side you see a chart that, um, I don't know how well you can read it, I'll share a little bit of what's on the chart, but what you see there is what food insecurity really looks like on the ground. At a most basic level it involves ongoing worry that your family will not have enough food for the month, that you might run out of food. And frequently, um, so the pink and blue lines represent low food, or food, food insecure households. So you can see it's almost 100% that people worry they will not have enough food for the month. Mm -hmm. Almost that many actually do run out of food at some point during the month. Um, a vast majority cannot afford to eat balanced meals. Um, of very low food security people, almost 90% cut or skip a meal on a regular basis for a period of more than three months. This is in part why families with children ex experience food insecurity at a very high rate because parents often sacrifice meals for their children. Furthermore, many working class families have little time to prepare healthy meals as they race between jobs and transporting children to school because the cheapest food frequently boasts the highest caloric value alongside the lowest nutritional value. Malnourishment and obesity in the U.S. go hand in hand. And increasingly in other countries, we're actually exporting this pattern now. So here's who is affected. In 2013, just over 14% of households in the United States experienced some level of food insecurity. 11% of households reported this in 2005. It's a pretty um, 
dramatic increase, um, largely tied to the recession of 2007. Perhaps more alarming, though, is the fact that, generally speaking, households with children were far more likely as, than those without children to experience food insecurity. And you can see from this chart on the right that um, about 10% of households, the children also are food insecure. And, and Many of the households, it's mostly the adults who are food insecure, giving the food to the kids, but in 10% of the households, actually the children also are food insecure. As I mentioned, food insecurity has been exacerbated by the recession. Between 2008 and 2010, the number of households receiving supplemental nutritional the Nutrition Assistance Program benefits, SNAP benefits, used to be called food stamps, increased by about 46%, from 13 million to 18.6 million. So you see that jump there in 2007. You see it level off in part because um, President Obama, the Obama administration, um, expanded the um, accessibility to SNAP benefits so more people could get those benefits. And so it actually probably prevented more skyrocketing uh, food insecurity in the U.S. because food stamps, nutritional assistance, really does address uh, food, food insecurity. And here's one more map related to the topic of food security. This map shows that Georgia is one of nine or ten states with food insecurity rates higher than the rest of the United States. <coughs> Remember that the national average is about 14.3%. In Georgia, it's about 16.6%. Uh, I don't know what statistic you've heard recently, Chad. And I just want to make a brief aside. If you combine these um, statistics about food insecurity, in Atlanta, a family's particular economic situation, their own resources for food, are not the only factor in food security. In many cities and rural communities across the United States and around the world, there are whole communities that lack access to fresh, nutritious, healthy food at an affordable price. These communities are sometimes described as food deserts. Food desert is a contested term. I'm a little uncomfortable using it because um, it defines a community according to what it lacks, right? And um, it's often defined by people who are not living in that community. Still, it's a term that uh, many people recognize now, so I still use it because I think it's descriptive. Researcher Marie Gallagher says that residents of food deserts, large geographic areas with no or distant grocery stores, face nutritional challenges evident in diet-related community health outcomes. Those outcomes worsen when the food desert has high concentrations of nearby fast food alternatives. And to that, I would add convenience stores and liquor stores. And so in these communities, that is frequently the only place to buy food. Here's a map of Atlanta. And the, this was published by Atlanta Magazine a few months ago. You might have seen this article. Um, demonstrating in red the communities where, there, where more than a third of the residents live more than a mile from a grocery store. And if you're relying on public transportation in a city like Atlanta, a mile is a really long way to go carrying groceries. <laughs> These red areas also um, 
tend to be affected by a 20%, at least 20% poverty rate. The yellow areas also have low access, but not the same poverty rates. So to be poor in Atlanta, in addition to reducing the capacity to buy food, also increases the likelihood that you live in a community with fewer options for purchasing healthy, fresh food. So now I'm going to invite Chad to tell us a little bit about the food, face of food insecurity as you experience it in Atlanta. Uh, let me, <coughs> pardon me, let me uh, step aside just a moment and uh, thank you for coming. I really appreciate you being present here. Uh, I feel like uh, among us here we are people of God who are trying to grapple with issues of, that, of import to our neighbors, uh, to ourselves, to our churches. And I'm grateful for you having that kind of interest. So thank you. I also want to thank uh, Dean Love. Um, uh, Anne, thank you very much. And uh, it's really nice to be working with you again, yeah. Jennifer. Uh, I've been blessed to know, even though we haven't worked that closely for a while, I've known Jennifer for a, a good while, and, it's, and I appreciate your opening remarks there. They're very helpful. Uh, overall in this time, what I would want to do is tell you about our particular program. As, as you know, throughout here in, in, in certain moments, as well as uh, some of the theological grounding for that, what motivates me and my sense of call, and what uh, I hope is also tugging on all of our hearts in certain ways, uh, as well as give you certain kinds of statistics and stories. Uh, to add a little bit to what Jennifer was just saying, uh, and, when, and I'm not the researcher that Jennifer is, or, nor the scholar, but I find it hard to find uh, uh, statistics sometimes that are up to date as far as Atlanta per se is concerned. I know that in 2009, one of the last figures I have, uh, the poverty level, those who live below the poverty level in Atlanta was uh, 28%, just about 28%. Well, that's huge. Uh, right now, the poverty level in Atlanta, it, it, the national government poverty level for a family of four is set at $23,850. Well, that figure alone is ridiculous. Yeah. We, we don't change those figures. The, the federal government doesn't adjust them. They haven't been adjusted for years. I mean, they're incrementally adjusted, but, but not really refigured in terms of what's actually needed, which is probably, according to some researchers, closer to $40,000 at least. Mm -hmm. So even, the, even all of our statistics that we throw out in, in a certain kind of way are misleading. Uh, and, and we're a country in a lot of trouble as far as poverty kinds of issues go. Uh, Atlanta, in, in a study that was just released at the end of last year by a Harvard professor uh, named Nathaniel Henderson, or Hendren, I'm sorry, it's called the Equality of Poverty Project, Opportunity Project. Atlanta was listed as 50th among major cities as far as the ability of those who were at the bottom to move up to the top or to move up that scale as far as opportunities to move up. And for me, that's one of the, the, the larger major issues here. Uh, that I want to be pointing at more as I go along. Uh, 
between 2000 and 2010, the poverty level in Atlanta more than doubled. Uh, uh, it went up 122%. And one of the issues is that Georgia is only one of four states in the union that still has a minimum wage. It's only $5.15. I mean, we're, we're certainly talking about injustice, among other things, when we talk about this sort of thing. Uh, and last year in November, SNAP uh, benefits were cut. The allotments were uh, averaged uh, for a family of four, they got $36 on average less a month for to, to get the food that they need. That's not the direction we needed to be going, but that's the direction we went. Um, in my particular program, we have 350 families that are in our food cooperatives that we are, we are meeting with every other week and providing food for. The average income of our families is under $12,000 a year. So you think about that and what that's going to mean about anxiety about food and about what's going on in your household and who's eating and who's not and, and what the stresses and the strains are on you if you're living with that kind of income and trying to, in many cases, uh, support children and grandchildren. Uh, that's a real common thing among our families. So uh, I think for me that's, that's got it for the moment, Jennifer. Okay. Do you want to show the video now or well, later? If, if you, no. Yes. If, in that case, let me make a, f a few other comments yeah. about... I'll, let me go ahead and say a little more about our particular program, our food co-op program then, and uh, give you a sense of what we are doing, how we are approaching addressing this issue. Uh, and I'm going to begin by contrasting two different models of the ways churches in particular have approached uh, dealing with food insecurity with families. A food pantry is, there are food pantries, thousands of them in the country, and thank God for them. Uh, however, our program is quite a contrast to food pantries. Uh, a pantry in general, and I'm going to paint with a broad brush in, in our experience here in Atlanta. In a food pantry, an individual walks in and they are given a bag of food. That bag of food will last two or three days typically, and in generally speaking, you cannot return to that program for at least a month. Now again, this varies. Sometimes you can more, sometimes less. It just varies. Uh, that food is given to them as a handout, uh, by, put together by volunteers. Uh, you, there's not a sense of choice, and there's no choice in the food, and you leave. You might have been treated well. You might not have been treated well. One of the uh, one of your students here, who came over several years ago to our program, uh, was a, an interim pastor in a church in Rome, Georgia, and he said his church had a food pantry, and if he had the authority, he would shut it down because of the way the church members talked about and treated, makes me cry to tell this, treated poor people who came into the program, came needing food. That's just outrageous. How can that be? And my own members will tell me when they've had to go to food pantries, oftentimes there's a sense of humiliation. They're, they're being looked down on and so forth. Uh, so 
Ours is a bit of a contrast. We, <coughs> we want to use that need for food <coughs> pardon me, to do, accomplish several things. We want to accomplish food security, if possible. So that with what we provide, along with food stamps plus whatever somebody's budget money is, they're going to have enough for the month and not being worried about that. So if you lift that anxiety, and, and which already uh, Jennifer's touched on, you, it's not all the worries somebody has, but it's a huge thing if you lift the anxiety about not having food for yourself, your grandchildren, whoever it is. So food security is one, <coughs> is one of our goals. But also, when you become a member of the Urban Recipe Food Co-op, you become part of a community. Our co-ops are 50 families strong. So you now have support that you did not have. You're not just an individual walking in and walking out. And not only that, you are in charge of the program. There's a sense of dignity. They will elect their own president. They're, they'll run the meetings that we have. I don't run those meetings. I may be there. I may not. Uh, we can, because we have a community, <coughs> pardon me, I don't know what's going on here. The devil's trying to keep you from speaking. Uh, because we have a community, uh, and, and I can tell you one little story, for instance. Uh, several years ago, one of our members had her home burned down not long before Christmas. And one of the other members of the food co-op said, well, you can live with us until you get that straightened out. The only way they knew each other was in the food co-op. They weren't friends before. They weren't in a church together. So you see, you have added support there just by using that need for food to bring people together. Um, there's power. Once you move from the individual walking in and walking out to community, you've taken a huge leap <coughs> in terms of possibilities because now people can begin to talk together, dream together, support each other. Uh, you, Because we have a gathering like that, you can do educational things. Mm -hmm. We've recently done cooking demonstrations. How to cook more healthily, what uh, spices can you use that help to lower your blood pressure, for instance, etc., etc. The Morehouse School of uh, Medicine has worked with us. They've come over and made presentations about how do you eat to help with your diabetic issues and so forth. Because we provide as much food as we do, some of our members tell us that they save money that helps them to stay in their home, pay their rent or their mortgage or whatever it is. One of the things that was implied strongly uh, by what Jennifer was saying is People have to continually make, make choices mm -hmm. when they don't have enough income. Am I going to pay for food? Am I going to pay for medicine? Am I going to keep my home? What am I going to do? Because mm -hmm. I don't have enough. So by providing that much food, we help free uh, money for families. In our situation, a medium-sized family, we divide food by family size, one to three people, four to seven and eight or more. I'm going to try to talk fast because uh, I feel like there's a lot to cover in a short time. Uh, the medium-sized box, on average, will be worth a minimum of $100 that they're going to get every other week. 
Well, if you're a family whose income is under $12,000 a year, and we meet 25 times a year, you figure we're adding a minimum of $2,500 worth of food to their household. Well, that's a, a large percentage of their income, and we can do that. This year, we will provide over to the thank God for the Atlanta Community Food Bank and that whole Feeding America system, uh, because that's what we rely on. Uh, so we will provide this year something around 200 tons of food for our families. And we will do that for a budget of uh, a little over $50,000. So you can see we're leveraging our funds pretty well. Uh, but because, again, because you have that community, and we do this in the name of Jesus, but we do not require anybody to be Christian. We are very clear, of course you can't use food to muscle somebody to become a Christian. You, you don't want that kind of Christian. Uh, but uh, it's, there's no integrity in it. I'm, we're, we're very clear. We're going to love people and honor people and respect people. We want to create an atmosphere of respect and care. Uh, and then see, uh, but we find that because we do that, uh, people's faith actually gets built up in this community. Because they feel cared for. There's some wonderful stories around that kind of thing. But because you use that food, then you create relationships. Uh, you build community, and you do that in, in a way that there's dignity. Because our members not they they do the work to load that food in boxes, and they also make a small financial contribution. So there's, well, there's not a sense. There's not a sense that I just got a handout and I don't do anything for it. We do this. We do this together. It's us together. Uh, so, uh, one story I can tell you that would illustrate this. We had a woman who, was, who came to us who uh, had been working at the Postal Service. She was a single woman who was, I'm going to guess, 50-ish. And she said to me, before I got in this food co-op, my life was miserable. I had, uh, she had handled something in the postal service that somebody had sent through that was poisonous. And she had been injured some way that I don't know, but had been forced to retire on a postal disability. Well, that was all well and good. She could get by as a single woman. But then very shortly after that, her sister was having her five children taken away from her by defects. She took them all in. One of those children had two children. She very shortly after that took in her eight-year-old niece whose father was arrested for molesting her. All of a sudden she went from being one to a household with a lot of people in it. She said, I was frantic. My, I couldn't keep my utilities going. The refrigerator was going off. I was losing the food I had. I didn't have enough food. I was worried about whether I could feed, feed us. And I was also worried about losing my house. She said, I got in this food co-op, I get the largest box here now, and that would be a minimum of about $150 worth of food every other week. She said, it's like a new life for me. Now I know I'm gonna have enough money to pay for our home. I know that we're gonna have enough food. And even though I can't pay the utilities every month, I can, I can keep them rolling. I can make that work. And she said, uh, I want to get on the board of directors to help make sure this keeps going. Now, how great is that? You know, that somebody would actually feel proud of a program that's about handing out free food because even the money they contribute doesn't go for paying for the food. It's a handling fee to, to help you feel a sense of dignity. So, I want, well, there's a lot I could say about it. But that, that illustrates 
kind of in, in a nutshell some of what this approach allows when you food uh, what we've been talking about food is uh, according to the uh, I guess uh, theological uh, grounding here according to uh, second Maslow 315 or whatever it is <laughs> you know that's it on the physical level mm -hmm. uh, you be, be besides air you can't get more important than food food and water and once you kind of free people in that area there's all kinds of things that can begin to happen and I'm guessing I've probably used my time, so I need to turn this back over to you, Jennifer. Okay. We can show the video a little later then. Oh, you want to do that now? Does that make sense? You, you sure, yeah. All right, we'll show you a video. <laughs> this will give you a sense of the atmosphere and what's going on. Sorry about that. Food in a bag and give it to you. A lot of times people want to work and they want to help out. 
They don't want you to just hand it to them. They want to do something to show their appreciation for the food. Everybody work together. We put the food in the boxes. Uh, if you're disabled, you may sit at the table and just take the money. But everybody have a part they play. The food we don't pay for. The food mostly comes from the Atlanta Community Food Bank, which you pay $3 each time you come to a poor meeting. The $3 for the gas and the heat and the light on. Um, what that does for me and my family is help us meet ends because we are on a low income, so we don't have to miss any meals. When you go to the co-op, it's always something you need. Like this week, my grandbaby, he's been short on pampers, and what we've been doing is living with him a little longer. We need a pampers. I got bad pampers today. <laughs> I would go to the food pantries and I noticed the difference between the food pantry, even when you go to a church food pantry, you're not getting the spiritualness part of it. The food co-op is a Christian ministry, but you don't have to be a Christian to join the co-op. We have devotion service, which consists of a prayer, a scripture, and a song. Chad. So clearly the food co-ops are an innovative and powerful response to food insecurity in Atlanta. I want us to stop for a second and think about what kind of a response they are. As uh, Chad mentioned, religious communities have long histories of feeding the hungry, from food pantries to warm meals to sandwiches delivered on urban streets to distributing gift cards to grocery stores. Many religious communities have taken seriously and materially Jesus' charge to Simon Peter, feed my lambs. In a family's most desperate moments of poverty and food insecurity, they may turn to congregations and religious organizations for immediate help. In many cases, these religious communities are the first responders to hunger, providing not only a meal but often a compassionate ear although it sounds like that happens less frequently than we might hope. When they do this, they are, in the best sense, faithful ministries of charity. 
Some religious communities, however, see that these efforts are limited. They are meant to respond to crises, but do little to address persistent issues of structural injustice. They respond to food insecurity with the provision of food, and thank God for that, as we say. And when those sources of food are stable and accessible, they contribute to food security. And so I want us to recall this definition of food security. Note what the bar is for food security. Access to enough food. Christians and people of conscience committed to the dignity of persons and communities might rightly worry that mere access to enough food, especially when it is dependent upon a supermarket coming to the neighborhood or the largesse of benefactors, does not necessarily change power structures or support the agency and dignity of persons and communities who are food insecure. Indeed, those who might open food charities or even markets in poor communities could perhaps unwittingly perpetuate a relationship of dependence on outside sources for the provision of food. An ongoing relationship of dependence can compromise the agency and sovereignty of the people in a community. People are easily disenfranchised in this arrangement. The complexities of weighing ministries of charity and justice present challenges to every religious community. The challenge lies in becoming partners rather than problem solvers. John McKnight describes the tensions well. You might know this quote from him. He says, when I'm around church people, I always... Oh, no. There's just a little... I wonder... Wow. Yeah, that was... Okay. So um, he says, when I'm around church people, I always check. Have they substituted the vision of service for the only thing that will make people whole community? Are they service peddlers or community builders? Peddling services, he says, is unchristian, even if you're hell-bent on helping people. Peddling services instead of building communities is the one way you can be sure not to help. We might take some comfort in the fact that even the earliest Christians struggled to understand and respond to the demands of economic and social justice. In the communities described in Acts, for example, the earliest Christians wondered whether and to what degree, despite the call to share them, some among them continued to go hungry. Similarly, Paul recounts the ways in which attendance at the earliest Eucharistic meals continued to treat the poor as objects of charity, giving to them the leftover or the poorest quality of food. The eschatological thrust of the Eucharist, however, is a shared meal of abundance in which each participant not only eats but contributes to the meal, placing her gifts upon a table already weighed down in the midst of a garden with enough food for all. Chad, when I visit the co-ops, I see a community of abundance built on the principles of self-governance and distributive justice, but also love and compassion. Indeed, I think they manage very well to balance the dual Christian moral responsibility of charity and justice. As Martin Luther King Jr. put it, on the one hand, that must have like a lead finger instead of a lead foot. 
Um, on the one hand, we are called to play the Good Samaritan on life's roadside, but that will be only an initial act. One day we must come to see that the whole Jericho Road must be transformed so that men and women will not be constantly beaten and robbed as they make their journey on life's highway. True compassion, he said, is more than flinging a coin to a beggar. It is not haphazard and superficial. It comes to see that an edifice which produces beggars needs restructuring. For many churches and communities affected by food insecurity, including among their own members, a more thoroughgoing community-based response to transform the situation is in order. This kind of response is perhaps called, more accurately, food sovereignty in contrast with food security. There again is food security. When the community improvises and imagines its own responses to food insecurity, it seeks not only reliable access to food, but food sovereignty. Via Campesina defines food sovereignty as the right of each nation to maintain and develop its own capacity to produce its basic foods, respecting cultural and productive capacity. Developed by peasant farmer activists in Mexico and Central America, I think the concept of food sovereignty can be applied on a smaller scale, too. Food sovereignty prioritizes local production of food for local people in a sustainable way and works toward building knowledge and skills to do so. In a context of food sovereignty, the members of the community themselves are the leaders in, shaping the, in the shaping of the local food system. They exercise moral authority in determining the quality, availability, and accessibility of food in the community. And so I want to share with you just one story of another. Um, I think that the co-op is one example of a movement toward food sovereignty, and I'll say a little bit more about that in a second. But I want to share with you briefly one other story. Faith in Place is an environmental interfaith nonprofit in Chicago who won a grant a few years ago to partner with four congregations in South and West Chicago to start urban gardening projects. Each garden would have a master gardener, but otherwise would be planted, intended, and harvested by youth, adolescents, teenagers. Veronica Kyle tells me that some of the young women in the program misunderstood, perhaps, what gardening entailed arriving on the first day wearing cute white slacks and delicate silver sandals. She says, they said, oh, we thought we were going to learn about it. (laughs) But no, the youth ran that garden, actually. They earned money for doing it and learned together in a place like the co-op's where dignity tastes good. I love that tagline. Here's Veronica Kyle describing it. Putting something in the ground one day, two, three, four, five days down the road, ten days later, seeing this rock stick out. It was something that it was like, wow. And then to grow and to taste it, to nurture it and taste it. And this, this is what a tomato tastes like in the ground. This is okra. I would go and visit them and go, this is curry. You don't know. This is basil. Put it in your head. Smell it. Now they went from, you know, ugh to taste. <laughs> 
So I joined the youth garden crew for their harvest day, and that's where some of these images came from. Here's the scene. Piles of greens, herbs, and peppers are starting to slide off the edges of this small table in the middle of the garden. Although this particular table has a utilitarian use and is not set for a meal, the image of a feast set out, the image of a feast set out in the middle of that garden is an important image. It speaks powerfully to the context of food insecurity in the midst of a neighborhood described by outside experts as a food desert, as a place where food does not grow, a table heaped with food tells a different story, a story overflowing with eschatological hope. That story is one of a community that works together to provide food for the hungry, that honors and recovers the dignity of growing food, and discovers the joy of relating compassionately to one another and to God's earth. At Lincoln Memorial Garden, the youth gardeners were the most informed experts on any given plant in the garden. The community members themselves had determined what would be grown, when it would be harvested, and how it would be distributed. Of course, they asked for and received some technical help along the way. On the whole, however, members of other congregations who wanted to participate in what was going on at Lincoln Memorial became their partners, their guests, in working toward food sovereignty rather than service providers who came into the community offering charity. Indeed, several of the volunteers who were not from the West Woodlawn neighborhood came from neighborhoods where fresh and even organic food was ubiquitous. And yet they waited for instructions and wisdom from the community members themselves, who were the experts on that community, its members, and the food that they were growing there. Together, they are transforming the Jericho Road one garden at a time. Practices of growing food seek to transform local structures of food availability in the interest of food sovereignty. They rely on principles of community and relationship building, self-governance, and the nurturing of human dignity. Certainly in this way, the self-governing co-ops supported by Urban Recipe were born in the spirit of food sovereignty. Chad, once when I visited you at the Georgia Avenue Food Co-op, you said something that stayed with me since then, and I actually put this in the book. You said, we've got poor people who are used to being kicked around. We don't want to perpetuate that. And I think that that's sort of at the heart of the way in which they govern themselves when they run the co-ops themselves. So um, would you like to say more about that? We have a few more minutes. Uh, our approach is an asset-based community development or Christian community development approach. Uh, talking about John McKnight's work, uh, which I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with. Um, I, I don't want to paint our food co-ops as the be-all, end-all. It's a small program, but it, it, it at least is an effort to get beyond some of the patterns we've had uh, in the ways we relate to poor people, in the ways we've related racially and so forth, to create relationships where we're working together, we're caring for each other. Uh, it's not me up here uh, helping, being a helper and feeling good about being a helper, and maybe you feel good about it, maybe you don't. Uh, it's just creating a circle, so to speak, where we're working together. I have my role, you have your role. Um, when we talk about food security, 
it is an important category, but it can't be separated really, and, and that's been made clear a lot uh, by Jennifer's remarks from what you might call social insecurity or power insecurity. Uh, those who have the least have the least voice, the least power to say how things are going to be shaped. And so you, you're looking for structures to shift that a little bit, even a little bit. Uh, our members, uh, by participating in the way they do, uh, become the president. They, they become officers there. They, be, they have roles. And that's not to say that our members don't already contribute. In some ways they do in their own communities or their churches. But nevertheless, this becomes a place where somebody has a sense of self. And we've seen that change. Uh, we've seen people quit drinking just because they got in the food co-op and had a, felt, felt a sense of care. We had a woman who came into our food co-ops, uh, and I already knew her because she came to a meal that we were serving, and she was on SSI because of alcoholism. I said, you just got to quit drinking. She said, I'm not quitting and I don't care. I said, you're going to kill yourself. She said, I don't care. She got in the food co-op. She quit drinking. She doesn't know why. She's never been to an AA meeting. She hasn't had a drink in over 20 years. They elected her the president of the co-op. The woman can't say a word. They had to speak for her. It's just marvelous. I just love it. And then she ended up joining our church, which we never pressure anybody to do. And she comes every week and prays for my wife, who has some health issues all the time. It's just a great blessing. But we didn't. We couldn't make her not. She can't come to meetings drunk. But she. But we can't say you can't be an alcoholic. Um, but that food insecurity is part of that larger piece. Uh, and for me, the, the scriptures behind all the... I think the, biblically, we're, we're moving... Uh, it's obvious, I think, isn't it? That we need to have these kinds of relationships. We need to be crossing these lines. The two titanic figures in the scriptures. Uh, if you look at Moses, so you look at Jesus... What did they do? They forsook being in the palace to be with the poor, right? To be with us. Uh, and so what I'm thinking is, part of my, my shtick here, part of my agenda is to say, we have to, if people can't move toward us, if there's, if there's social insecurity and power insecurity, we in the church have to move toward them. We've got to create those relationships. We've got to embed ourselves where... I, I think of one particular example. Just by my... I moved to, in Grant Park in 1979. And at the time, it was an area that people were leaving. They were white people at least. You know, mm -hmm. you know the story. And because they were afraid, because of crime and so forth. For me, the call of Jesus is not to move away, but to move toward something like that. And just by being there and being concerned about how do I relate to my neighbors in a, in a caring way, things can begin. I'm connected in ways that other people are not. Uh, so when we, we had a food co-op going, but I knew that we could get funds, our members could get funds from the Self-Development of People Fund of the Presbyterian Church. But they're the ones that had to write the proposal. Our members, not me. So I knew about that. They didn't know about that. And they met and met and talked and talked and finally came up with the idea that, hey, we've got such a long waiting list, let's start a new food co-op. 
They wrote a two-page proposal in their own hand, presented it to the Self-Development of People Company we, uh, uh, program, and we started our second food co-op. They gave us $10,000. Well, that paid the people that wrote the proposal a small stipend to run that program and paid for all the food for a year. We started that in 1994. It's still running. All of our coordinators are people who came to us needing food. Our director of food co-ops came to our program because she needed food. We pay a living wage. That's another way. If you're going to talk about doing something in the name of Jesus, you don't keep all the money for yourself. You try to do this in an honest way, in an honorable way, so that people feel uh, their work is honored, their time is honored, their efforts honored. And then, you know, then you're really in this together much more. Now, they're just part-time jobs. I wish they were more. Uh, but still, for the time that people put in, they really feel, they feel like they're doing a ministry and they feel good about it. Obviously, loving your neighbor as yourself. We see the feeding of the 5,000s where it's, I, I know for years growing up the way I did, it's like you wanted to, the preachers wanted to separate spiritual from physical. Right? And the physical wasn't as important. You just got to get people to come to Jesus. I don't think that's scriptural. Uh, when you look at the ways that Jesus cared for people, healed people, provided uh, food, you know, whatever it is, you meet people for who they are and what their needs are. I think uh, Jennifer already pointed to the Eucharist. How powerful is that symbol? That's the heart of our ministry. You sit around the table in a place where there's a loving atmosphere and it's not an agenda. I'm not looking at you to find out whether you deserve to get my food or not. Or whether you know whether you've really earned it or you're any good. I'm not evaluating you. We're together around this table and we have a relationship and we're getting to know someone at a table that's been set by somebody that loves us so much. The whole atmosphere is supposed to be love, that he would give everything so that we could be around that table. How powerful is that? That's food security. There is, for me, there's a, the parable of uh, Lazarus and Diabetes is so crucial. It, it's a, an important piece of this in that, uh, you know the story. Uh, the rich man is in his gated community. He's got a poor man outside the community and he doesn't want to give him a thing. No food, no nothing. I hear this, preachers, I hear this when I, it's in a sermon, always interpreting this as, well, the rich man is greedy. You know, as well as I, the rich man is not being greedy. He's being holy. He's got to keep away from the poor man, right? He's got to maintain his standing. After all, he is a righteous man. How do we know that? He's rich. He's doing well. He's not sick. And Lazarus is obviously a sinner. And how do we know that? He's poor. He's sick. And he can't touch him because if he touches him, what? Here he is, a guy with boils and whatever he's got. He's going to be unclean. He's going to have to go kill the red calf. He's going to have to be humiliated instead of in his dignified place in the temple. He's going to stand at the other end and feel humiliation. I mean, the whole, the, the whole religion is set up. And that's what Jesus is getting at. It's set up to reward this kind of crap. You know, that I feel I've got my cake and eat it too. Only Jesus, of course, 
pulled the rug completely out from under them and said, who, who was it that went to heaven and who was it that went to hell in the story? Well, the, the, what uh, Dives just does not recognize is that being with Lazarus was his ticket to heaven. Lazarus needed him, but he needed Lazarus. One of the things we have to, especially us middle class and upper middle class folk, we always think that we've got so much to bring to poor people. We've got to re-examine that. They have got things to bring to you that you need. We need the togetherness. People who live with under $12,000 a year have got to have some kind of faith. I mean, they're not knowing where their rent is coming from, you know? You, the reason you go and you love, say, you go to Latin America and you see the power in the worship of poor people or the power in African American communities is because the need is so great. The, you know, the need to call on God. And, and, and us who are, who are uh, we got money in the bank. We don't, we don't need that. We don't, I'm honored, honestly, that we can, in our situation, that I am, am blessed to be in a situation where I can serve our people. A lot of people say, I, I want to come to your program because it's a better way to hold poor people accountable. Mm -hmm. I mean, I want to use language I'm not supposed to use here to say, describe that attitude. Uh, it's just, we've got people in our co-ops that are just heroic people. Mm -hmm. I am 69. I've got a woman in our co-ops who is 77 now, and when she was 68, about my age, she took in six kids from a sister, from another relative who was losing them. Well, I'll tell you right now, I ain't taking in no six kids. That woman's going to be so far ahead of me in that line, I'm going to be hard, it's going to be hard for me to see her. She's doing things I don't want to do. And I have the blessing to be able to support her to do that because she's struggling to do it. You know, I'm telling you, we really need to think that paradigm because if we, want, if we only deal in categories of food insecurity, then we can a little bit distance from us mm -hmm. because then it's our, how do we engineer getting food to people. It's about this larger shift stuff that, that Jennifer's been talking about that, and I want to touch on there is it's about life together and especially in the church just about all the people in my food co-ops I'm talking about 350 families have are Christians or come from Christian backgrounds I'm not just talking even if you want to categorize we're, we use the category how do I help poor people hey these are brothers and sisters in Christ you know these are my brothers these are my sisters think that causes you to think about the category in a little bit different way because the, the what you, words we use make a difference to how we approach these things. I have no idea where we are in time. <laughs> I think I, I better uh, uh, turn this over to you and see where, where you think we are, what we need to do. The preceding program is copyrighted by Emory University.